All right. Well, um, if you'd like to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Uh, hold your place there. We'll be looking at uh, verses 57 through 62 uh, here in just a couple of minutes as we continue uh, in our series on the gospel of Luke. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Romans three twenty four says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 3.29, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Galatians 2.16, We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Each of these verses of Scripture that uh, I've read here today communicate a very clear biblical message. Salvation is a free gift that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not based on our being good enough because why? We can't be good enough. It's not based on that. Uh, Salvation isn't uh, based on our ability uh, to to mess up only a certain number of times and not not go over that that magic threshold of how many times we're allowed to, to mess up. Salvation isn't based on our serving enough. It's not based on our reading the Bible enough. Are you thankful for that? Yes. (laughs) It isn't based on our praying enough. It isn't based on our sharing our faith enough. It is a free gift of God secured for us by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is available to us through faith in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, If you're a person who uh, grew up in a legalistic church tradition that convinced you that you had to earn your way with God, these verses that we've read today and many others present a very liberating truth to you. Uh, it's It's just so liberating to find out that our salvation does not depend on us and our goodness, but it depends entirely on Christ and His perfect righteousness. Uh, These verses are liberating no matter what our background is because for all of us, it is liberating to know that we do not have to earn our way with God. We can simply trust Jesus to be saved. It's not about our goodness. It's not about our merit. So Christians rightly proclaim this message. We're we're very vocal about this message. We we proclaim it loud and clear. Salvation is a free gift available to whoever is willing to turn to Christ in faith. But here's something that happens sometimes. Uh, Christians are guilty of uh, sometimes believing that because salvation is a free gift... And because there's nothing that we uh, can do or nothing that we have to do to earn it, that because our works of righteousness can never secure our right standing before God, that because of all of these things, 
All that is required of Christians is nothing. All that's required of us is nothing. Isn't that a wonderfully liberating message? (laughs) Nothing's required. If we think that, we don't properly understand the Bible, we don't properly understand salvation, we don't properly understand discipleship, we don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. Because while salvation is free, there is a high cost attached to following Jesus. A very high cost. We shouldn't miss this point. Because Jesus emphasizes this point very strongly, and he emphasizes it repeatedly. Repeatedly. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, in this very same chapter of Luke that we are still in, Jesus taught that to follow him required denying self, taking up a cross, being willing to, to give our lives to him even to the point of death. And now we haven't even gotten out of chapter 9 of the book of Luke before Jesus is again driving home the high cost of following him. It it makes one think, rightly so, that this is very important to Jesus, that we understand this, that that we receive this, this message. You know, Jesus isn't like the salesman who who doesn't tell the whole story right up front. Uh, you know, only, only gives you the good spin on the product, and then once you're committed, uh, then you find out the negatives. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is very scrupulous in his dealings with us. He wants to make sure that people know exactly what they're getting into before they answer the call to follow him. Uh, so he tells them up front what he requires. And in our text today, Luke nine fifty seven through 62... We're introduced to three would-be followers of Jesus. Uh, These uh, folks are potential followers. You might think of them a bit like uh, applicants applying uh, for the job of following Jesus. And, And in our text, before they make the commitment to follow, Jesus makes clear to each one of them what he's going to require of them in order to follow him. And as we consider this exchange between Jesus and these three would-be followers, we're going to find some very important things that Jesus requires of everyone who wants to follow him. Yes, salvation is free. Let that be very clear. But there is a high cost to following Jesus. Here's what the text says. You can follow along as I read. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back 
is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So for the next few minutes, we want to see what we can learn from uh, this interaction between these three would-be followers in Jesus about what he expects uh, of his followers. You know, the first applicant seems kind of eager. He declares with great certainty, I will follow you wherever you go. I think it is so interesting how Jesus responds to this. Uh, you know, he doesn't say, great, come on. That, that's, that's not his response. I mean, uh, he, he's, he's much more deliberate. He's much more uh, cautious about this thing. He, he offers a word of caution to the man. He, he wants to make sure that the man is not, not uh, uh, committing to follow without having really thought through what it means. And so he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, now, there may be uh, several messages that we could uh, derive from this statement of Jesus, but here's one that I think is very clear, and that is that Jesus is letting the man know that anyone who follows him should not count on easy or luxurious living. Don't count on an easy path. Don't count on a luxurious path. You know, this is a bit difficult for us to relate to in, in our context because following Jesus for us doesn't, uh, doesn't usually come with the same consequences that accompanied that decision uh, in the first century. You know, a decision to follow Jesus at that time and for many Christians in various parts of the world today comes with significant social, economic, and political consequences. Uh, then, and for many people around the world today, a decision to follow Jesus meant being ostracized from family, being ostracized from friends, being put outside of their social network, which would not only have social uh, impact, but would have economic impact as well. In our context, there uh, often are social consequences for following Jesus, usually usually not to the point of being completely ostracized, although sometimes that happens. Every once in a while, you may hear of uh, economic impact in our, uh, in our culture for following Jesus, perhaps the loss of an inheritance, if a parent's extremely antagonistic toward your decision to follow Jesus. But for most of us, for the vast majority of us, following Jesus doesn't have a huge negative impact on us in an economic sense. I mean, we can choose to follow Jesus and still live very comfortable middle-class lifestyles for the most part. Probably stretch too thin middle-class lifestyles. Uh, probably lifestyles that are nicer than we actually should be living lifestyles. Uh, but, but we have nice homes. We have plenty of food. We, and, and so we don't really relate much to, to this call that Jesus is giving to this man. And yet... We cannot pass this, uh, this statement of Jesus, we can't pass this call of Jesus off as not having any application for our lives. And so we have to wrestle with what is the application for our lives. Uh, you know, by any objective standard, even those of us in this room today who would have the most modest, be of the most modest means are in the top 5% of the world's population in terms of material prosperity. 
those of us who are of the most modest means. And, and so this call of, of Jesus to, to this man who was so eager to follow is a call to us as well. And, and so we have to wrestle with this, even, even though we say, oh, how, how does this work in our context? Uh, Daryl Rowland wrote an excellent article in the Dispatch last Sunday where he asked this question. So who are those one percenters? You've heard this debate of the 1% and the 99%? Yes, you heard, heard, heard this debate? Okay. Uh, usually my questions are rhetorical, so I understand how you get confused when I actually want, want a response. So uh, I'm, I'm sorry to discombobulate you like that. Uh, but, but he asked, uh, you know, who are those 1%? And, and he expanded the question a little bit. Usually uh, that, that uh, question is asked in the context of the United States of America. That's where that debate is really, uh, really happening. So he said, let's expand this to include the entire world. Who are the one percenters now? And, and he had some fascinating statistics. He, he listed some names of people that are obviously one percenters. Uh, LeBron James is a one percenter. Bill Gates is a one percenter. Les Wexner is a one percenter. But then he, he started uh, giving us some information that, that might surprise us a little bit. If your household income is $100,000 a year, good money, but not crazy, you are in the top 1% of people in the world. In fact, the top 0.79% of people in the world. Let's go down a little further. If your household income is $80,000, which if, if you have two people working, there are probably a number of you here today whose household income is $80,000 or more. If that is you, you fall barely outside of the 1%. At $80,000, you are almost in the top 1% of people on the entire planet. What if your household income is 50000 per year, which, by the way, is the statistical average in Pataskala, Ohio. I think it's like 51.7 or something like that in Pataskala is the average household income. Where do you rate? Okay, well, technically you're not in the top 1%, but you are in the top 3.5%. In the entire world, you're in the top 3.5%. Say, okay, Brian, my household income isn't $50,000. let us go all the way down. What if your household income qualifies for the poverty level? Here's what it is in the U.S., 15, that roughly $15,000 a year for a family of two. Where are you then? You are better off in financial terms than 84% of people who inhabit planet Earth. You are in the top 16% if you are at poverty level in the United States. The point is that we are all extremely well off by global standards. So this warning of Jesus, this call of Jesus, you know, no place to lay your head and, and, and these things, uh, it's a bit curious to us. But even in our blessed situation, we have to apply what Jesus is saying to us here. 
We, we have to wrestle with the implications of what Jesus has said to this man. And so here are a few things that I think, the, the kind of questions that we have to ask ourselves to, to properly uh, wrestle with this and, and apply this to our lives. First of all, as followers of Jesus, in our materially blessed situation, we have to be willing to hold our material blessings very loosely. We, we can't become people who cling tightly to, to our material blessings. We, we need to be people who ask questions like this. How much is too much? When has my home become ostentatious? When have I wasted God's resources by buying another TV that I didn't really need? How high of a thread count do my sheets really need to have? And, and how many high thread count sheets is too many? Now, I've talked about these things in the past. I'm, I'm not reaching the conclusion for you. Uh, I think the conclusion may be different for different people, but I'm just saying we need to ask these questions. This is how we need to wrestle with a text like this. We, we ask, what's too much? What, what does this mean for me? Is it appropriate for me to invest uh, in that timeshare in Florida when I'm not tithing? Actually, I'll uh, reach the conclusion on that one for you. No, it's not. <laughs> Is it always God's will for me to accept a position with more responsibility simply because there is a higher paycheck attached to it? Or is it sometimes more pleasing to God for me to forego the larger paycheck because the increase in responsibility is going to take me away from too many other things that God wants me to give attention to? Could God tell us that the beautiful home that we're living in but that requires us to work 60 and 70 hours a week to support it, could God be asking us to acknowledge that that home is more than we need? Asking us to be, to be willing to, to simplify, to be willing to sell it and move into a nice but more modest home. Listen, if, if you know me, you know that I do not count myself among those Christians who think, that there is anything wrong with wealth. I mean, if somebody doesn't have wealth, there's no help for victims of tsunamis. There's no help for people who fall on hard times. There are no jobs for any of us to work at. Somebody needs to have some wealth. And, and, and I don't count myself among those who think that to be a Christian means that you never can do anything nice for your family. As long as there is one person you can find who, who has less than what you have. I, I don't think that way. But I do think that we need to ask ourselves more questions and ask ourselves harder questions than what we typically ask. And I do think that we need to hold our material possessions very loosely. I don't think having things is so much a problem, but... but and you've heard this said before, it's sort of cliched, but when things have you, it becomes a real problem. When things have you, you have entered into idolatry and you're serving a rival God called mammon, biblically. Someday, 
And if the right things are going, it may not be too far down the road, but someday our material blessings may be taken away from us. Then we'll connect much more closely with what's uh, being said by Jesus here. But until such a day would come, we still have to wrestle with what it should look like to follow the one who teaches that his followers shouldn't count on luxurious living. Jesus is also letting this first would-be follower know that to follow him, a person has to be willing to embrace uncertainty. No place to lay his head. An uncertain existence. God asks all kinds of things of us that require us to embrace uncertainty. Many of you have, uh, could probably stand up right now and say, Amen, and here's what he required of me. Uh, that required me to embrace uncertainty. He might ask us to share our faith with someone that we're intimidated by, uh, afraid of how they'll respond to us, but, but he requires us to embrace that uncertainty and do it anyway. He might ask us to commit to leading a ministry even though we're not sure that we're up to the task. We don't know how it's going to turn out. Uncertainty. But he's calling us to do it. I finished a, a great book this week by uh, Andy Stanley, a pastor of North Point Church in the Atlanta area, one of the largest churches in the nation, and, and uh, it was a book called The Next Generation Leader. And, and on this idea of, uh, you know, being called to do something that you're not sure you're up to it, he, he shared. Now, get it, this is the pastor of a, uh, I think it's one of the top three or four largest churches in the country. And he admitted in the book, he said, my staff and I, have never led a church this size. He said, none of us have ever been a part of a church this size. He said, most of us have never worked at a church before. He said, here's the deal. We actually have no idea what we're doing. (laughs) I found that incredibly encouraging because that's where I live. (laughs) Frankly, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I share this because there's uncertainty. They've never done it before. And yet they're trusting God to guide them and provide what they need. And we're trusting God to guide us and provide us with what we need. And you need to trust God when He's calling you to do something, to guide you and provide what you need to do the thing that He's called you to do. God might ask us to go to another nation Uh, where there's no gospel witness. Take the gospel to people who might even be hostile to your being there. Uncertainty. He might ask you to take that lower-paying job. He, he, He might ask you to get rid of the clutter in your life. And by clutter, I mean all the unnecessary junk that we accumulate. Uh, it might be valuable, but it's still clutter. It's still stuff we don't, we don't really need. So that you'll be ready. He might ask you to do that so that you'll be ready for what he's about to call you to do. But the only thing you've heard is simplify your life, reduce the clutter, take the lower paying job, and you don't know yet what he's setting you up to do. Uncertainty. Not not sure how it's going to turn out. But but I think Jesus said this. Uh, last night, there was a movie shown here, uh, the movie Courageous. And uh, by the way, the team of people who put that on did an excellent job, and we, uh, we thank you for that. 
But uh, this, this illustration was in the movie last night that God might ask you to refuse to compromise your ethics in a work situation, even when it is your boss who is suggesting that you compromise. You may be fearful that, that the loss of your job may accompany refusing the boss's inappropriate request. What do you do? Uncertainty. Uncertainty. God calls us to embrace it. Following Jesus means we shouldn't count on luxurious living and that we must embrace uncertainty. And so Jesus says to this first would-be follower, slow down a minute. Slow down. You're so certain that you need to hear the whole story first. Let me tell you what it's really going to mean and I want you to count the cost Soberly count the cost before you commit. And if you have never committed to Christ before, but you're considering it, Jesus says to you, before you commit, count the cost. He, he doesn't want us following him under false pretenses. You know, maybe someone told us that what it meant to follow Jesus was free ice cream sundays every day. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't want us following under those false pretenses. He wants us to choose to follow him knowing all of the facts. Maybe you're here and you followed him for a long time. He wants us to examine ourselves and ask if we are really following in the high cost way that he demands. Or have we substituted truly following Jesus the way he defines it? with our own definition of following that is different than his. Then we come to the second would-be follower. In this one, Jesus calls to follow him. But the man responded to Jesus' invitation by saying this, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. Let me go bury my father. And Jesus' answer seems to be extremely harsh. In fact, uh, this counts among those uh, <clears throat> teachings of Jesus that are considered really hard sayings in the Bible, things that are just really difficult for our, us to wrap our brains around and, and, and deal with exactly how demanding Jesus can be. So, so uh, Jesus says, you know, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, there is debate among uh, among folks about whether this is as harsh as it sounds. Uh, some believe that Jesus is saying exactly what it sounds as though he's saying. They, they believe that the man's father has passed away and that Jesus is demanding the man not even attend the funeral, but immediately answer his call to follow without attending to his father first. Uh, others believe that it's not as harsh as it sounds at first, that, that this would be out of character for Jesus and, the, and that the objective of the man, uh, I'm sorry, the objection of the man means something a little different than what it sounds like. <clears throat> William Barclay is among those who think there's a better understanding of this. He says that it's unlikely that the man's father was dead. He said it's unlikely that the man's father was even near death. Barclay says this objection from the would-be follower of Jesus probably amounts to saying, I will follow you after my father has died. I'll follow you after he's died. He's doing well right now. But, but once he's dead, then I 
will follow you. In other words, this man is putting Jesus off indefinitely. And what Jesus is saying in response to the man is that he won't be put off. Jesus isn't going to be put off. He, he, he's not going to be kicked down the road, so to speak. Jesus isn't a can that we can just kick down the road. We don't want to deal with that right now. He's called the man to follow, and the man needs to say yes. There is urgency for us to respond when Jesus invites us to follow him. There is an urgency to his call on our lives. Far too often, Jesus will invite someone to follow him. And they put him off. They say, I'll do it sometime later. But then what happens? Far too often, later never comes. Later never comes. They just never get around to it. They, they never prioritize it. They let the moment of decision pass, and it just never happens. It isn't that Jesus wouldn't still receive them. But something happens when they spurn Jesus at that moment of decision. And they go their own way. And they never get back to the moment of decision. When Jesus calls us, as I believe he's calling some of you here today. When he calls us, there is urgency in the call. And it is important that we respond quickly, not putting Jesus off. There are a couple other things that we learn here. <clears throat> Even though I personally tend to agree with Barclay that Jesus is not as harsh as it first sounds here, that doesn't change the high bar expectations that Jesus has of his followers. First, Jesus will not be prioritized lower than first. He, he won't be prioritized lower than first priority. Whatever the status of the man's father, he is prioritizing the father above Jesus. And that won't work if you're going to follow Jesus. He demands that he be our first priority. And so a question that we have to continually ask ourselves, is Jesus... My first priority. And uh, I have water coming to help me out here. So uh, thank you, Ben. <clears throat> so thoughtful of you. I sense that when my voice, uh, whatever happened, that you all got very concerned. Because uh, there was a certain feel in the room. My voice went bad. And then it felt like the feel went to like... I'm not sure we're going to get it back, so you might just have to adjust. I assure you, I am okay. My voice just sounds bad. <clears throat> so, so we have to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus our first priority? Or is he our second, third, or fourth priority in reality? Which is it? <clears throat> Which is it? Are we prioritizing? Are you prioritizing family? over Jesus? Are you prioritizing job over Jesus? Are you prioritizing entertainment over Jesus? If he is not first, then we are redefining what it means to follow him. 
In fact, we're not following Him. Secondly, human affection. Friends, this is hard, okay? But, but we have to embrace this. Human affection takes second place to the will of God. Man, that's a hard one. And yet it's true. <clears throat> and this is one of the points where many people decide that it's just too costly to follow Jesus. Unreasonable even to follow Jesus. And yet this goes through Scripture. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said this, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Say, well, I'm not that fond of my parents anyway. That's not that, <laughs> not that big a deal. <clears throat> All right. Well, this next one's going to get you. Okay, this next one. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh, okay. Now that one's hard. The other one's hard too, but that one really gets us. And many of us here today in this room, we've shrunk back from that one. We, we don't ever have to admit it. There's usually not a, a reason we have to come clean with that. But if we could look down into the recesses of our heart, probably a good number of us here today who have prioritized our children higher than we've prioritized God. Our affection for our children is higher than our affection for God. <clears throat> who do you love more than Jesus? It's a problem. Jesus says if we're going to follow him, there is a high cost. And one of these costly things about following Jesus is that we must love him most. All over the world today, people are choosing to follow Jesus even though they know it's going to cause them to be disowned by their families. It's going to cause them to lose their family. They know this. And yet they choose to follow. What about us? <clears throat> do we love him that much? If it cost us that, do we love him that much? You know, we have people in this very church who have suffered the pain of being rejected by their family because of their commitment to Jesus. They love Jesus most. And if you're here today and that is your situation, I want you to know that God is highly pleased with you. Human affection <clears throat> takes second place to the will of God. There is a high cost to following. Salvation is free, but following is costly. Do you love Jesus most? Jesus issues the call to follow to the third man who says this, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service 
in the kingdom of God. What I believe is largely represented in these words of Jesus is the problem of people saying yes to following him while allowing their hearts to continue to belong to the things of their past. Your outline has three points under applicant three. The first two are that we can't follow Jesus without sacrifice. And that following Jesus requires holding loosely to the things of this world, including life on earth. Both of those are true. But for the sake of time today, I want to focus on this third one, which I think is the main application from this third uh, would-be follower. Following Jesus requires being fully committed. Half-hearted commitment is unacceptable. Lukewarm service to Jesus will not do. Divided loyalties and divided affections are not acceptable to Jesus. And we see this throughout the Bible that God is highly displeased with divided affections. Let me remind you of a few instances in the Old Testament where people were called by God but divided in their hearts because they desired their past. You remember the story of Lot and his family. The angel of the Lord comes down and warns them that their cities are about to be destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be completely destroyed. They were told by the angel of the Lord to flee. And what? Don't look back. Don't look back. But Lot's wife, as they were fleeing, her fondness for the place overtook her. She looked back and her life was required of her because of her divided loyalty. God was calling them out of destruction into life. And she looked back wistfully to the place of destruction. And then the Israelites, after being delivered from slavery to the Egyptians, came to the place where the Bible tells us that they longed for the comfort of Egypt. They fondly remembered and reminisced about their bondage. Weren't those the good old days when we were bound in slavery? The food was so tasty in slavery. We had, you know, those nice little huts while we were in slavery. And this is a huge obstacle to people following Jesus. We say we'll follow. We call Jesus Lord. But something else, some other affection, some other loyalty really owns us. Deep down, we have a fondness for our past life. Deep down, we have a fondness for our past sins that God has called us out of. That's why sometimes testimonies sound like bragging. Jesus says that to follow him, nothing else, no one else can own us. We have to be fully committed to him. Does something else own you? Does someone else own you? If there is something that God has called you to leave behind, but your heart still desires that thing, 
It's a problem. It's a problem. Jesus uses an agricultural reference here. He says that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I don't know much about plowing, so I hope I'm not going to be insulting to any farmers, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I, I at least know enough to know that in those days plowing was not automated. When I see people plowing out along Watkins Road, it usually looks to me like they're listening to music and uh, sipping a Coke. And um, so if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I'm just telling you that's what it looks like to me. I know it's hard work, but, but sitting up there in the you know, captain's chair doesn't look all that hard. Um, <laughs> but uh, again, I stand to be corrected, just observation. Um, <laughs> It's definitely not as hard as it was in the first century. Let's leave it at that. In the first century, in order to plow a straight row, in order to plow a straight row, full attention was required to what was ahead. Yet you had to be fully focused on what was ahead. Looking back at what you had already done would result in what? A goofy looking row. That's what would happen. And so Jesus is telling us that to follow well, our attention needs to be fully on what he has called us to, not on what he has called us out of. It needs to be fully on where he is leading us, not on the sins and the life that he brought us out of. We need to be focused ahead. You cannot serve God well while having affection for your sinful past. You can't serve God well while longing for the sin and bondage that God has called us out of. You know, we're not told whether these three potential followers ultimately decided to follow Jesus or not. The scripture doesn't tell us that. We, we just don't know. So we're left with a question. Did they or didn't they? Free to make up your own, your own mind. But we're left with a more important question for us today. Will we or won't we? Let's bring it down to the individual level. Will you or won't you? Will you follow Jesus? Or will you decide that there is something more worthwhile, something you value more highly than him? Jesus asked us to give serious consideration to this call to follow him. He he wants us to give it the thought that it deserves. He, He does not want quick and unexamined commitments from us. The cost of following is too high for that. And so he lets us know what is expected. He lets us know how high the bar has been set. He lets us know how high the cost is for following him. And so he says to every one of us here today, count the cost of following me. Don't expect luxurious or easy living. Know that you're going to have to embrace uncertainty. Know that Jesus won't accept being lower than first priority. Know that human affection has to come in second to his will. 
Know that following Him requires sacrifice, requires holding to the things of this world loosely, including life itself. And know that Jesus requires your full commitment. Nothing half-hearted is going to be satisfactory to Him. Count the cost. Will you follow? Why don't you stand?